Hi everyone, I'm John Offord. I'm a broadcaster based in the UK and welcome to Different Minds, a podcast series that looks at neurodiversity, the different ways our brains can work and interpret information. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Timo, the award-winning visual planning app designed to support routine and time management. The app empowers users to schedule visual routines that work. Users say that Timo can actually help reduce stress and support executive function. Head to your app store and type T-I-I-M-O into the search bar to learn more. I'm delighted to be joined by TED speaker Adam Ockelford, Professor of Music and Director of the Applied Music Research Centre at the University of Roehampton in London. Adam wrote the official biography of the musical savant Derek Paravicini entitled In the Key of Genius, The Extraordinary Life of Derek Paravicini. Derek was born three and a half months prematurely and is blind and has severe autism. But with perfect pitch, innate talent and a lot of practice, he became a concert pianist by the age of 10. Adam is Derek's longtime piano teacher, mentee and friend. Adam, welcome to the show. Hi, hi John. Adam, how are you? How has 2020 been for you? <laughs> 2020 has been a year to forget. <laughs> um, I think for musicians everywhere, it's been terribly, uh, really difficult year. and for Derek as well, uh, he got really low um, after the first lockdown. So um, we've been trying to, to keep him going through, um, through Zoom uh, and other, other ways of uh, keeping in touch. And uh, he's so much looking forward to getting back out on the road again. Because really, it's music's all right, but actually it's music as a way of getting, getting yes. at people that he loves. He loves yeah. people above all. And that's the thing he's missed. Brilliant. So, so Adam, just tell us about um, how you got to know Derek in the first place and started working with Derek. Yep. So I was a student at um, the Royal Academy of Music in London, and I started doing voluntary work at a school for the blind in the early 1980s. And uh, I was amazed at how many of the children you couldn't see just seemed to have this natural affinity for music. It was really was like a natural language for them. They could improvise, play by ear, transpose. You know, it was just amazing. Um, and Derek was one of those children. He, was, he uh, was looking around the school when he was little, only four years old with his parents. And because he was very autistic and had learning difficulties, um, he, he, we didn't have much of a conversation on mm. that first meeting. Yeah. But uh, he, was, um, he was obviously an amazing musician in the making and uh yeah that was a long time ago 40 over 40 years ago now so often derek is described as a musical savant so for those of us that aren't sure what what is a savant yep so a savant is someone who has an exceptional island of ability in the context of severe learning difficulties so um savants are on the autism spectrum on the kind of what you might call the, the, the sort of lower functioning end of the autism spectrum. So quite a lot of them would have um, difficulties in managing everyday life. So for example, Derek needs help um, with, with all everyday tasks. He can't look after himself. Um, a lot of the savants may not be able to read or write um, and Derek can't, can't use Braille. And yet, despite that, they have one or two or more areas of talent that is 
exceptional by any standards. And that's certainly Derek as well. So I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about Derek's unique relationship to music. Is it, is it the case that, that Derek can play any piece of music after hearing it once? Yeah, that's the, the popular conception, misconception that <laughs> yeah. um, people like Derek have what, they, what people like to think of as a photographic memory for sound, whatever yeah. that quite means. Mm-hmm. Um, no, the reality is that savants, just the same uh, way as all of us do, actually learn things by spotting patterns and regularities. And so, as we know, music is very, very heavily patterned sound. And Derek's brain is in a way it's similar to all of our musical brains he's just much better at it and much quicker and a lot of it is driven by his um absolute pitch so that means that whenever he hears a note he knows exactly which one it is Uh, if he hears an airplane engine or a car or a bell he knows exactly which musical note that would be and if he hears a full orchestra playing he knows what every instrument is playing and that's that's really the basis of his unique talent. I interviewed um, Simon Baron Cohen the other week about his new book, The Pattern Seekers, A New Theory of yep. Human Invention. And um, often um, Simon talks about the fact that autistic people are often strong uh, systemizers. So that kind of, that's in keeping, would you say, with Derek in, in terms of the way that he learns to play music? Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, Derek and Simon have a great relationship actually right. ever since we did it. TV program together about 15 years ago. Right. And um, I think the lovely thing is that um, for sure Derek's a great systematizer, as all autistic people are, but I think through music they can also have this demonstrate their empathetic side. To me, that's the great thing about music is that um, autistic people who in other contexts would find it hard to make relationships, would hard to understand feelings and other people's feelings through music they can and that's the really special bit so Derek is both a systematizer and an empathizer in the context of music so I think I saw an interview with Derek on, on YouTube and he was saying that pretty much all music make makes Derek feel happy yeah I work with lots of um, autistic people mainly uh, autistic children and um, you know there is this sort of stereotype that autistic people are sort of cold and yeah. um, don't get people and don't want to form relationships. Actually, it's really not true at all. And um, very often they they feel things more deeply. They may just not express their emotions or their feelings in quite the same way, but they desperately want to make friends on the whole. And music time and again offers a way in, a sort of safe space in which to meet other people. Very often language and words are quite scary, threatening, um, a source of great misunderstanding. Whereas music, it doesn't tell you what to do, it doesn't criticise, you know, it's, there's, there's no ambiguity there. It is, as we said, pure pattern in sound. And so it's a safe space to, uh, in which to reach out to other people. So would you say, Adam, that your work, your kind of research shows that our minds are, in fact, um, remain ready to listen to the world of, I guess, of pre-linguistic utterances rather than kind of languages as, as we all know it today. Yeah, I think there's really good evidence both from young infants and also from anthropologists looking at uh, human development as a whole, as a race, uh, that music precedes and preceded language. So it's a more, in some ways, it's a more primitive way of communicating because it's pure sound, it's the expression of emotion in sound. 
but through music, it can also be one of the most sophisticated ways of communicating. So whereas in language, it's very difficult, for example, if more than one person talks at the same time, um, in music, you can have five people uh, singing or playing at the same time. And we can understand what all of them are doing and they all fit together and it's fantastic. You know, so music really is, the great thing about it, it at its simplest, it can mm. appeal to people who aren't yet language ready. Yeah. And it is most complicated, it can take us to places beyond what language alone can do. So it's, it's this, what an educationist would call a, a capacity for differentiation. You know, people yeah. with profound disabilities can love music and some of the most intelligent people on the planet can also love music. That's the great, great thing about it. Adam, wonder if you could just tell us a bit about how your book came about in, in the key of genius, The Extraordinary Life of Derek Pavacini. I know that the Mail on Sunday described it as a moving account of an incredibly gifted pianist. Yeah, sure. So um, when Derek was in his mid-twenties, I've always had a very close relationship with Derek's family, with his um, father and mother and uh, brother and sister, who are incredibly loyal uh, followers of Derek and... Uh, We'll do anything for him. And we decided that um, having, like lots of um, prodigies, Derek had a, a very successful uh, early childhood, but then things tailed off a bit as uh, teenage got hold. And, you know, teenagers are just less interesting than little children uh, as far as the media are concerned. Yeah. And so we had to find a way of moving Derek from being an exceptional child into being an adult entertainer whom people would ultimately pay money to go in here that's what it amounts to. yeah um and so we decided to do three things one was to um to make a cd and derek did make his first cd called echoes of the sounds to be uh we had an opportunity also to um make a, a documentary about derek and that came about um through channel five and pbs in the states they made a piece called extraordinary people which featured derek and we also decided that um, we decided they, we all decided that I should be the one to write the book. Yeah. Um, so I'd never done anything like that before, being an academic, um, and I didn't think I'd be able to do it. But talking to the family and just just reflecting, really, over a drink or two, suddenly I was amazed how much recall um, I actually did have of the details of, of, of Derek's early life. Yeah. And actually, it was a great joy and quite easy to write. It was very quick, just took three or four months. And, and really, it was just sitting in a quiet place and just closing my eyes and just writing down what I saw and heard, what I could remember. And it was a great, great pleasure. And the family were fantastic, um, yeah, you know, reminded me of some details or things that I wasn't there to experience, like when Derek was born, for example. Yeah. Um, but it was a very happy happy thing and Derek himself loves his book even now it's his, he can't read but he loves uh, bedtime people to read, read yeah. chapters to him yeah. so he's very proud of his um, his biography brilliant and are you are you still kind of working with Derek nowadays as well yeah I, I when, when we started um, all those years ago back in the 1980s yeah. um, I assume that like like all people's Derek would be around for four or five years and then move on yeah um but I soon discovered working with people with severe disabilities, they don't tend to move on. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so you've got a friend for life. Yeah. And I think part of the responsibility of um, working with people like Derek uh, and many others I have done over the years is that you have to say, am I prepared to make the commitment? Because once you've, 
formed a relationship with someone like Derek, it, it, it's not necessarily the easiest thing. And someone like Derek might come to rely on you a lot and to trust you and you know to be a friend. Yeah. And you can't just walk away. Um, not that I'd want to walk away, but yeah. it, it is. Um, I know that was for, for as long as I'm around, I'll be I'll be Derek's um, friend. I think yeah. he thinks of us as friends, which yeah. which we are. Yeah. That's great to hear. So I know you, as you mentioned, you do a lot of work with blind children and including those with additional disabilities. And I know that you, you, you are fascinated by just how musical many of them seem to be. Uh, and and you're, I guess you're trying to understand how these uh, people could hear and understand music so effectively. And would that be right to say that that led you to develop a theory of how music makes sense? Yeah, I was very interested when I left music college. Yeah. Um, I was sort of thinking what to do. Part of my life was, um, as a composer, I was, I was enjoying composing. Uh, there was this emerging strand working with the children who are blind, and a lot of them were autistic as well, although we didn't tend to use the word so much then. Yeah. Um, and I was just very, I think in, in, in the music I was writing myself, I was very interested in how, how it is that with no musical training, most people, after all, don't have musical training. Mm. Uh, we can intuitively understand music. We just get it. Mm. Um, everyone in the world, every human being can understand music. And how is that possible? And that it was trying to answer that question that got me interested in just how music makes sense, how musical structure works, and how music conveys meaning. And because of people like uh, Derek, I was working with seemed to be such strong examples of that. I mean, Derek could barely speak, and yet he was a sophisticated musician by the time he was four years old. And actually coming to understand Derek um, gave me ideas for how we all make sense of music. And that yeah. was, I think that was the rich thing for me, was that, that fusion of kind of music theory on a quite an abstract level, yeah. music psychology, how the brain works, and the practical day-to-day -day business of working with people like Derek. And I guess um, that theory was awarded a PhD by London University in 1993, and that, and that has since been published in a number of academic journals and, and books. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, my, um, my, my latest sort of public effort to... It's very hard, you know, to, um, to write about music in a way that's accessible to yeah. people generally. Yeah. That's not completely banal. Mm. Um, because people on the whole don't have the technical vocabulary to, to, to know what you're talking about. I found that in writing about Derek's improvisations and things when he was a little boy. Yeah. Um, describe in words what this boy was doing was a, was, was a great challenge, um, mm. but it's been a useful one to, to come to terms with. Yeah. And um, so my latest book um, from two or three years ago is called Comparing Notes, um, published by um, Profile Books in, in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and Pegasus in the U in the US, and um, that tries to explain uh, in sort of as far as possible everyday language and um, just how music works. And it it refers to my stories of working with people like Derek and some of his friends, and reflects on on the experiences I had with them to try and make sense of how we all make sense of music. I read somewhere that you said that through playing games with Derek, you came to understand that the, the significance of repetition in music and, and that it occurs with the perceived intent and, and music seems to the listener to be imitating itself. Could you just tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So I think the easiest way to explain it is to think first of, of words and language. So 
the words we're we're talking now um, to each other make sense because they're conjuring up images. So yeah. each of the the words and the groups of words we're we're exchanging, um, they 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 represent things in the brain. So there's quite a complicated process going on whereby sound is given meaning because it's associated with other thoughts, other yeah. thoughts, feelings, visual images, etc. Mm-hmm. Now music doesn't do that. I, it, can do that but that's not the main way it communicates it communicates purely by by the by hearing the relationship between one note and another note that's why the book's called comparing notes mm. and it's the way that um one note is heard to relate to another that makes music make sense and in particular it makes sense because we hear um patterns and repetition and in music we hear the sense of intentionality. So if you think of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, for example, yeah. bum, 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 um, that doesn't point, it doesn't mean milk bottle or tree or house or door. It makes sense because um, one pattern is heard as intentionally copying another. But it's not just the copying, John, it, it's the fact that it, it takes an idea and transforms it slightly, that's the crucial thing. So if it was just the same pattern over and over again, that would be pretty, but the point is Beethoven takes that pattern and he gradually transforms it from one thing into another and each of those transformations has a slightly different uh, evokes a slightly different emotion over time and it's those that narrative that's created through the different emotions that creates as it were a story in sound an abstract story in sound and that's in a word how music works what has working with Derek over the years then? What, what, what has been the surprising the most for you? Mm, gosh. Hmm. Um, I think the thing with Derek is, is his capacity to understand music seems boundless. You know, with most pupils I work with over the years, you kind of reach and think, oh, yeah, we're about at the, this is where we're going to get. With Derek, I always sense there's a bit more, you know, he I've, must have sat well, I have sat next to him and heard him play for thousands of hours. And yet still in concerts, we could be sitting in San Diego, wherever it is, and he's responding to audience requests. And sometimes I've never heard of the piece that people ask for. Derek just plays it. Not only that, he'll play it in his own special way. So he'll introduce a new harmony or chord or a, a little riff. And I think, gosh, that's beautiful, Derek. And yet, you know, at the end, I can say to Derek, that was, I love that whatever it was, you know, C minor seven chord you put in. He's no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> and he can't even remember the piece he played. He says, well, what's for supper, Adam, or something? Yeah. So for him, it's, he's so in, disingenuous. You know, he, he's just playing the piano for him and making music and entertaining people is literally as easy as breathing. He doesn't even have to think about it. In fact, he can't think about it. That's yeah. an extraordinary thing. You know how we, we have this thing called metacognition? So we're able yeah. to think about our own thinking processes. Yes. Derek can't do that. He still can't think about the way he learns or the way uh, he affects people. Yeah. He just does it. And I think it's that lovely, it's that almost childlike quality that's so magical. And that's, I think, why people are attracted to Derek and why he's just, he remains interesting to me. I never get bored of hearing him play yeah. because he's, He's genuinely original, creative, and yet he's he's in innocence as well. Yeah. You know, he's not he doesn't he doesn't know what it is to brag or to boast. Yeah, yes. Yeah. For him, music is just the most natural, the most wonderful thing. Incredible. 
A, a general question about music then, Adam. Would you say that performing or making or writing music is, is good for you, your general well-being? Yeah, uh, music is, I mean, there's so much research now coming uh, out across the world showing the value of music um, to other areas of, of, of our lives, um, particularly recently thinking of you know, the fact we've all been stuck with our own company quite yeah, a lot yeah. and music um the power of music for well-being is very important but also the power of music to connect people together is terribly important mm. um i've been i do a lot of work as well as with autistic people with people with dementia mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of a lot of stuff out there on youtube and facebook and so on of, of people with dementia who seem to be almost in a vegetative state mm. and yet you play them a piece from their childhood mm. and the finger starts moving and the arm starts moving the head lifts up yeah suddenly they start singing suddenly they start talking suddenly they start dancing and i've I've seen that yeah. um, time and time again. And actually, I take Derek, we do a lot of work, uh, and I hope we'll return to doing a lot of work mm. with people with dementia with Derek, because he can play all the pieces that people want yeah. um, from, you know, from the, any, any era, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And because he plays with such conviction and such passion and takes no prisoners in his playing, he, he has an electrifying effect yeah. on older people with dementia. And to see, to go into a home and, you know, it's a classic thing. They're all most, mostly old ladies because most of the men haven't made it. Yeah. <laughs> um, sitting around in their big wing armchairs, you know, with the television on in the corner and nothing's happening. Yeah. And yet, 10 minutes later, uh, Derek's on the keyboard. They're all singing, literally getting up and dancing. Um, and then suddenly the language comes back. You know, yeah. the, the speech comes back and we now know in terms of neuroscience that this is because it seems that dementia damages the pathways to words in the brain but words are coded in two ways of song so the the music and the words are are stored together in the brain and the music channels seem to be undamaged or, or certainly spared yeah. uh, to a great extent and so people can access the words and the language and the memories through the music channel and once they've got at them they you know it's like a, a halo effect the, the glow spreads to other parts of the brain and it is the most fantastic thing it really is magic it's incredible do you think on that on the subject of music being good for you do you think social prescribing will become more commonplace in, in the united kingdom in terms of uh, health professionals referring patients to uh, kind of creative activity in the community to, in order to improve their, their health and well-being? I'm sure it will. It's very much um, on the agenda at the moment. Yeah. Um, the, the, the challenge with music um, is to do, you know, doctors love randomised control trials and, and quite right. So if you mm. want to have a, a vaccine for COVID, the way to see whether it works is to do very strict double-blinded controls. So uh, you know, some people get a placebo, some people get the real thing, no one knows what's happening. And it's only then you can really tell the impact of the vaccine. Music's rather different because it's very complicated, it's multidimensional, it's one thing in people's lives, it has knock-on effects with other things. Um, and so it's part of a very complicated web. And to, to do a, a randomised control trial with music, apart from in a very, very simplistic way, is very difficult. So you, you get more holistic evidence of its benefits, and holistic evidence tends not to stand up terribly well compared with the gold standard of medical evidence, which is randomised control trials. 
So there's a tendency um, at the moment to, to try to quantify some of the effects of, of music, which is meeting with limited success. I think the, the real thing that will happen is that the mindset will change and that people will recognise that you don't necessarily need a medical model to understand the impact of music and to appreciate it. And I'm quite sure that social prescribing, as, as you say, will get off the ground much yeah. more and more in the next three to five years. Not least because I think everyone agrees it's preferable to a pharmacological yeah. intervention. It's basically if we can uh, make recordings of, of the right kind of music for the right sort of occasion, it, it's sort of free, basically. Um, and it's, it's completely natural. It's part of, of the way that humans evolved over the last half a million years. Yeah. And so really it's tapping into what we naturally do. It's, 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 you know, it's not invasive. It's not something external. It's something that taps into our inner selves. And that's the great thing about it. Absolutely. So Adam, what's in store for you in 2021 in terms of your future work and, and research? Yeah, so um, in the last five years, really, I've been trying to, um, to create lots of resources um, based on all the research done over, over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and so um, I, I set up a charity called the Amber Trust 25 years ago, which is for um, children with visual impairments in their pursuit of music and we we uh, benefit about 600 blind and partially sighted children a year in the UK um, directly uh, and some of the ways we've, we're doing that is through making resources for them so there's a scheme called Little Amber for example which is for blind babies and their families there's another one for called Amber Plus which is for uh, children who are visually impaired and have additional disabilities and uh, providing music for them. And we've just started a new one called With Music in Mind, which is for blind children who have dementia. I mean, tragically, um, people don't realise, but dementia not only affects older people, it also affects children yeah. in a few cases. And for them, I mean, if music's important for all of us, for that group, music is, I mean, it is the only thing that makes a difference. So for these children, they can keep talking for longer, for example, if they think in terms of music, and they can move for longer, and their quality of life is much better. So I've really focused in the last five years, as I say, making resources freely available. They're all freely available online. And raising the money, basically, to have practitioners go and work with children and families to persuade them that making music with their child is something that they can all do. You don't need special training. And just to put you on the spot here, where can we where can we access those free online resources? Yeah, so if for the Amber Trust, if you go to uh, just Google Amber Trust, it's probably the easiest way. Yeah, and um, you will um, you will come to those resources. I also chair a charity called Soundabout, uh, and that offers similar services for children with complex needs. Again, just Google Soundabout and you will come to the resources and they're all they're all there you can just download them i'm going to ask you to play one of derek's uh, favorite pieces of music in just a minute but i just wanted to ask you a question that i ask all my guests on the different mind podcast series and and that is if you had the chance what what advice would you give your younger self adam hmm. <laughs> it's, it's tricky isn't it <laughs> um i suppose to um i think to to sort of worry less and to have faith that things will turn out. Sometimes, um, I suppose as you get older, I mean, I'm 61 now. Um, 
I sort of know that, that if you keep chipping away, things will actually happen. And, and sometimes things take a long time, especially in the field of disability. Um, you know, attitudes take a long time to change. And working with people with severe autism, it can take years to get through sometimes. But in the end, if you keep trying long enough and hard enough, things will happen. I think it's that. It's being able to, to look, it's easier to look back, isn't it? Um, and say, yeah, things will will change, things will get better. Whereas when you're, that's all still ahead of you, you want you want everything to happen pretty, pretty fast. And um, sometimes the route to, to doing what you want uh, is quite winding. Sound advice there. Thank you so much for speaking to us today, Adam. I really appreciate your time today. And clearly you are demonstrating that it is possible to make such an insular world fulfilling and, and the contemplation of this can obviously, as you say, touch the rest of us. So really appreciate talking to you today. Great pleasure. Yeah. No worries. So I'd love to, to finish by, um, by playing you a track from Derek's CD that he made with um, his quartet. He's got a wonderful jazz quartet, which had for about five or six years. Fantastic singer, Hannah Davey, wonderful violinist, Ben, and a great drummer called Ollie. And they are, they just make music in the most beautiful way together. And the track I've chosen is one by George Shearing, who himself was a blind musician. Uh, who went to the same school as Derek, Linden Lodge School in London, though about 80 years before Derek. So. Um, and uh, Lullaby of Birdland was George Shearing's great, great hit. I went once took Derek to see George, uh, and it was just wonderful to see them in their own way, have that sort of connection. It's difficult for Derek to talk, but he clearly loved George Shearing's playing, and he loves playing in the style of George Shearing. And in this track, you'll hear how he um, he uses some of George Shearing's voicings on the piano to create a magical effect. Lullaby of Birdland, that's what I always hear when you sigh. Never in my wordland could there be ways to reveal in a phrase how I feel. Have you ever heard two turtle doves, Bill and Kiss me sweet and we'll go.